I think we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. The rest of you will want to get out your sermon outline that says the restoration by Christ on it. Be building off the responsive reading that we started with this morning. We're almost done with John. One more week. Unless I change my mind and stretch it out some more. Yep, for your sanctification. We're in John 21, verses 15 through 19. This is a very famous passage of the restoration of the Apostle Peter. So let's look at that, turn in your Bibles, or read along in the outline. John 21, starting at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to a passage that's familiar, yet one that we don't fully understand. We ask this morning that you would work in our hearts and our minds, give us understanding Help us to see how your word affects our lives and changes us. In Jesus' name, amen. In his compelling book, The Hunger for More, Searching for Values in an Age of Greed, the author Lawrence Shames writes this, No one thinks about the textures, the nuances of failure. Because no one wants to think about failure at all. It can't be talked about. In a society where infidelity, net worth, and ovarian dysfunction are routinely discussed over dinner, failure remains taboo. An object of superstitious dread, the only F word not in common use. He goes on to say, In 1986, the Wall Street Journal reported on a business professor from Yale University 
who forced his students, all of whom had previous work experience, to talk about their failures. Whenever he did this, someone always asked if they could use the words error or mistake instead. The culture in which we live hates the notion of failure. And it will use all kinds of euphemisms to keep from saying that particular F word, failure. And the culture has invaded the church, and you can go into countless evangelical churches and find people using other words to describe failure. We prefer to make errors or slip-ups or mistakes or miscalculations or even screw-ups. But we don't like to talk about failure in general. And we especially don't want to talk about our own failures in particular. We treat the word sin the same way. Both are off limits. The Bible, however, doesn't candy coat failure. It parades from page to page the lives of people who failed. And there is power in failure if it's properly understood. And the problem with denying failure is that we can't experience the incredible benefits that come from failure in our lives. Today we're going to look at a man who many uh, see as a reflection of ourselves. If you've ever failed at anything, if you've ever slipped and skinned your spiritual knees, then the Apostle Peter is your friend. You know the background for this. Jesus has been delivered into the hands of the Roman authorities. He's gone through a series of mock trials. He'll be convicted, beaten, and crucified. And while all this is going on, Peter's ability to follow Christ is put to the test. And he fails spectacularly. Is that a word? Spectacularly? Okay, I have an attorney saying it's a word, so we're going with it. So let's look at the text and see what's going on here. Before we really get into today's passage, we need to back up a little bit and see why this meeting between Jesus and Peter is necessary. So first we have to look at Peter's failure. And so we'll go back to John 18, starting at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Jump to verse 25, John 18, 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So he said to, they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Like, I know who you are. You're the guy with the sword. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. That's failure. 
Peter denies his Lord in crunch time. It's like the fourth quarter, the final two minutes, and he caves. And when he hears the rooster crow, his heart is cut open. He's totally broken. Matthew 26, one of the parallel passages says, And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Have you ever failed like Peter failed? Not timidly, but cursing and screaming all the way. Do you know what it's like to feel the shame and remorse of going down? Have you ever suffered through the brokenness of public humiliation? One of the things I don't miss about the military is uh, how frequently you were given that opportunity to get chewed out in public in front of all your peers. And it wasn't on my list of fun things to do. You know, when you're a captain and the guy talking is a lieutenant colonel, and it... uh, Not enjoyable. But sometimes that happens. And we see it in our society. Recently, we've had in the papers last month a governor. Spectacular failure. However, if you think about it, most of our failures really aren't that spectacular. Very few of us go through Elliot Spitzer like public meltdowns. And the reality is, and I think this is actually true for the Elliot Spitzers as well, is that dramatic blowouts actually took a long time in coming. It's almost always a tire that goes flat slowly over time. And if you track back through your failures, you'll discover that very few of them came upon you suddenly. They're simply the culmination of a slow leak. For the Apostle Peter, the slow leak began all the way back in Mark 14, starting in verse 27. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. So not only is he saying, I'm your man. Notice he said, even though they all fall away, all those other loser disciples you got. I'm your man, Jesus. You and me. Boy, you must be just so excited to have me on your team. And the tire is punctured, and the leak starts, and it's caused by arrogance. Just sheer raw arrogance. Second indicator that his tire is going flat comes in the very next passage in Mark, also Mark 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And then in verse 37 it says, and he came and found them sleeping And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so Peter, we see, is hit first with pride and now with weakness. 
His tire is going flat. It's not over yet. His third lesson comes when Jesus is arrested. We jump back to John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And remember, Jesus healed the man. What was that cup that Jesus had to drink? It was a cup of suffering. Unless the Son of God suffered and died, there'd be no salvation for God's people. And Peter didn't seem to be all that interested in a suffering Savior. So he took out his sword. And for the second time, Jesus rebukes him. Pride, weakness, impulsiveness. And to some degree, I think they're all symptoms of unbelief. And now comes the dramatic failure of denying Christ three times. What would you do if you were Peter? I mean, it seems that Peter's not real sure how to react. So he retreats to what he knows best. He goes fishing. He was a fisherman. Goes back to the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. And he goes fishing because that's what he knows how to do. And Jesus meets Peter where he's at, on the shores of the sea. And Jesus comes and gives them a fishing lesson. And when they recognize Jesus, Peter can't wait to get to him. It says he dives out, uh, jumps out of the boat, dives into the water, swims to shore, leaving the rest of the disciples to bring in the boat and all the fish. People who fail, people who sin, people who can honestly admit their sin can't wait to get to God and get forgiven. And Peter drags himself to shore, and there's Jesus. John 21, going back to verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. They all recognize Jesus, and he serves them breakfast. Someone once said, there are no wasted metaphors in John. I think that's true. Where was Peter when he denied Christ? John 18, 18, warming himself by a charcoal fire. Where is Peter when he's restored by Christ? Warming himself by a charcoal fire. You think that's a coincidence? Just so happened to come about that way. No. I mean, the text doesn't say that directly. But I think we're going to see that Jesus planned this. I mean, I think the smell of a charcoal fire couldn't help but remind Peter of the worst moment in his life, his denial of his Lord. But Jesus brings him back to this reminder, brings him back to his denial, brings him back to the fire. And I think Jesus is essentially telling Peter, now let's try this again. So let's look at today's text and Peter's restoration. Jump to John 21, verse 15. We've gone from failure to restoration. As the curtain lifts here on this scene, the backdrop is the morning-lit Sea of Tiberias in Galilee. In the foreground is a rocky beach with a charcoal fire. The principal characters in this true life drama are Jesus, Peter, 
and uh, several other disciples seated around the fire. Starting at verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The Lord is asking, Simon, do you truly love me? After all that has happened, can you truly say you love me? And John doesn't tell us what was running through Peter's mind at those cutting words. From our own experience, we can imagine them. His heart probably began to race. His stomach was churning. His cheeks burned. His eyes misted. This is a tense moment. And Jesus addresses him as Simon, son of John, which was his name before he met Christ. The way the Lord addressed him intentionally calls into question his title of Peter, the rock. His personal message is something like, Peter, do you remember your human weakness? Remember what you were like before I met you? And that question, although I think it was motivated by love, it just had to hurt. Now, many people have made a big deal over Jesus using two different Greek words for love in his questions, and I think, to be honest with you, it's an exercise in missing the point. The point is in the repetition. Jesus asked Peter the same question three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answers him the same way three times. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And when Jesus asked the same question three times, the text mentions that Peter was grieved. Why this discussion? He's been forgiven. He's back in fellowship with the Lord. I mean, he's already seen the risen Christ once. He's heard those comforting words, peace be with you. But Peter can't forget his lapse of love. Had he disqualified himself from further service, would his heart ever really know peace again? Why did Jesus have to bring this up at the end of the meal in the presence of all these other disciples? For Peter's sake. Jesus did it for Peter's sake. Peter failed publicly, so he had to be restored publicly. He denied Christ three times. He had to affirm his love for Christ three times. Peter had to go through the agony of public repentance for Peter's sake and for the disciples' sake, so that he could be restored to his full function as the shepherd of God's sheep, the fisher of men that God had called him to be. And the restoration was accomplished, and they'd all seen it, and now they probably understood that the Lord had planned it all. Peter's denials happened before a charcoal fire, and now his confessions were before a charcoal fire. There's three denials, three confessions, three commissions. And Christ is saying to us through Peter's example that the greatest priority in life is the nature and primacy of our love for God. Here we see a man who loved God with all his heart but needed to be affirmed in that love before he could serve fruitfully again. 
And some of us may love Jesus dearly and others may not. But the abiding principle is that before all things, even before our service to him, we must first love him with all our hearts. It's the highest priority in life. It's the first question for anyone, for everyone who wants to please God. Loving God is the highest priority of our lives. And Christians are called to serve God. But to be honest with you, it's all too easy in following of Christ to put our priority on serving God rather than on loving God. Because techniques and methods can easily become our primary focus. And to carry out our methods, we need power. And sometimes, instead of longing for and loving the source of that power, we lust for the power alone. And production and results and success and numbers become the center of our thinking. Roy Hessian, in his beautiful little book, We Would See Jesus, which Lisa now has, he writes this. He says, To concentrate on service and activity for God may often actively thwart our attaining of the true goal, God himself. At first sight, it seems heroic to fling our lives away in the service of God and of our fellows. We feel it is bound to mean more to him than our experience of him. Service seems so unselfish, whereas concentrating on our walk with God seems selfish and self-centered. But it is the very reverse. The things that God is most concerned about are our coldness of heart towards himself and our proud, unbroken natures. Christian service of itself can and so often does leave our self-centered nature untouched. With those things hidden in our hearts, we have only to work alongside others and we find resentment, hardness, criticism, jealousy, and frustration issuing from our hearts. We think we're working for God, but the test of how little of our service is for him is revealed by our resentment or self-pity. We need to leave our lusting for ever larger spheres of Christian service and concentrate on seeing God for ourselves and finding the deep answer for life in him. The inversion of life's priorities is a deadly trap especially for those who take their Christianity seriously because they want their lives to count. They want to do something that will make a difference. And the fact is, God has always made his first priority for us clear. From earliest times, he's been very explicit. Even in the Shema sung by ancient Israel, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Everything we have is to be devoted to loving him. And that this theme was extended and substantiated by the Lord Jesus himself when a clever lawyer asked him, thinking he was going to trip him up, Matthew 22, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Nothing is of greater importance than loving God. If we fail to take this seriously, we may find at the end of our lives that all our works count for nothing. There'll be nothing but ashes on the altar. Our lives, our service, our good deeds mean nothing. 
without a true love for God. However, while it's true that serving doesn't prove that we love God, it's equally true that we can't honestly love God without serving Him. Peter not only receives this threefold uh, restoration, but he gets a threefold commission in verses 15, 16, and 17. He's told, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. It's more, even more significant when we realize it's a Near Eastern custom to say something three times before witnesses in order to formalize it, in order to make it official. It was sort of like, that's how they did a notary Republican, uh, public in that day and notarized things. Said it three times in front of witnesses. And now with his restoration complete, a life of service awaits the Apostle Peter. But Jesus has one more thing to tell Peter. And the disciples standing around the fire listening, and to us listening in some 2,000 years later. He wants Peter to have one driving purpose the rest of his life. Church history tells us that wherever Peter went to preach, for the rest of his life, people mocked him and heckled him by crowing like a rooster. Now that's church tradition, that's not scripture, but it has the ring of truth to it. And if Peter were going to survive that day after day, year after year, he needs some driving purpose to enable him to serve Christ until that day he would die for Christ. And he gets that purpose right here with Christ's command. Christ's command. Christ finishes this passage by saying, follow me, which is also the first thing he said when he called Peter, follow me. Verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, the primary interpretation of these verses throughout church history is that despite his age and infirmity, Peter would die a martyr's death by crucifixion. The giveaway is John's description of Peter's death as a means to glorify God, which according to the New Testament scholar Raymond Brown was standard Christian language for martyrdom. Moreover, the church fathers, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Cyprian, All view the phrase, you will stretch out your hands, as a description of crucifixion. And the sense of Christ's prophecy is something like this. When you were young, you had your own way. You dressed yourself, you went wherever you wanted with complete independence. But a time is coming when you will be old, and someone else will dress you and carry you and crucify you. When that happens, follow me. Christ is telling Peter very explicitly that his subsequent life of service will be extremely difficult with the humiliation of his pride and even infirmity or injury or illness, and it would culminate in the shame of his own personal crucifixion. Peter, who came to love Christ, I think, uh, in a way that I doubt few of us can truly comprehend, served Christ to the very end, with church history telling us that he indeed was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die as his Savior did. 
What compelled the Apostle Peter to come to such a difficult end? We turn to the Apostle Paul for the answer. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If our life is characterized by ease, if we have no problems because of our Christianity, something is wrong. Dr. John R.W. Stott, one of the great preachers of the last half of the 20th century, now in his 80s, recently retired, was preaching at All Souls Church in London, where he preached for about 60 years. He was preaching on this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. He said the following, and I quote, Now the church is not persecuted so much as ignored. Its revolutionary message has been reduced to a toothless creed for bourgeois suburbanites. Nobody opposes it any longer because really there is nothing to oppose. My own conviction, for what it's worth, is that if we Christians were to compromise less, we would undoubtedly suffer more. If we were to hold fast that old-fashioned gospel of Christ, crucified for sinners and of salvation as an absolutely free and undeserved gift, then the cross would again become a stumbling block to the proud. If we were to maintain the high moral standards of Jesus, of uncorruptible honesty and integrity, of chastity before marriage and fidelity in it, of costly self-sacrificial love, then there would be a public outcry that the church had returned to Puritanism. If we were to dare once more to talk plainly about, about the alternatives of life and death, salvation and judgment, heaven and hell, then the world would rise up in anger against such old-fashioned rubbish. Physical violence, imprisonment, and death may not be the fate of Christians in the West today, but faithfulness to Jesus Christ will without doubt bring ridicule and ostracism. This should not surprise us, however, for we are followers of the suffering Christ. Every year around Easter, often on Communion Sundays, we sing a classic hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Do you remember how that hymn ends? It ends with these words, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Peter got that. Peter understood what those words meant, and he lived them. It's amazing transformation, this restoration. Remember, what's the first time we see Peter after this? We see him preach, and we see him in Acts 3. There's a crippled man begging, and he's asking for money. And what does Peter say? Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise and walk. That's a different guy. That's a different guy. James Michener is a famous author, great writer. And he wrote a book 
about the early history of the Holy Land called The Source. It's a great book. And in it, he tells a fascinating story about a Canaanite tribesman named Erbal. And in this story, Erbal and his wife Timnah are visited by the priests of their pagan Canaanite idols. They have this practice, this pagan Canaanite faith. And they're asked to submit their firstborn son, their baby, to be sacrificed in worship of their pagan god, Makor. And it would have been blasphemous for Erbal and Timnah to refuse to surrender their infant son to the arms of this child-consuming god of the Canaanites. They took their religion seriously. With great anguish, they gave up their son. And we know this happens. My Old Testament professor is a biblical archaeologist and has discovered clay pots and throughout the Near East full of bones of little kids. Thousands of them. And in this story, they give up their son. And as Timnah watches in horror as her son is consumed by the fire, the tribesmen stand around the altar of the high priest to choose who would get to spend a week with the new prostitute priestess. Their fertility gods demanded that one man be chosen from the village to live with this cult prostitute priestess for a week. And because his firstborn son had just been offered as a sacrifice to Makor, Erbal was a candidate in the election, and when his name was drawn, Timnah is emotionally crushed by the obvious delight on his face. And as she turns and walks away from the scene when her husband departs to live with the priestess for a week, and she can't hold back her anguish over the sight of their baby, their only son, being consumed by the fire of a pagan idol. And as she was leaving, Timnah has a profound thought about her husband. With a different God, he would have been a different man. And then in the story, Timnah walks into her husband's God room where his pagan idols are stored and she methodically smashes them to pieces. With a different God, he would have been a different man. Years ago, the brilliant philosopher, theologian, apologist, Francis Schaeffer, wrote a book called, How Should We Then Live? It's a question that encompasses all of human history. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself to Israel as the one God, living and true, the creator God who acted powerfully, on behalf of his people. In the New Testament, God revealed himself as the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of his people. And if we know and believe this, and we say that we do, then Francis Schaeffer's question is still relevant for us today. How should we then live? If we're chosen and created by God the Father, loved and redeemed by God the Son, empowered and led by God the Holy Spirit, should we be different Should we live different? Should we think different because of what we believe? 
We have the different God. We don't have a capricious God who doesn't care about us and only rules over us by threat and intimidation, who kills our children and steals our spouses. We have a loving Savior who cares passionately about us, invites us into a love relationship with Him, who causes all things to work together for good in our lives, even the suffering and the pain that are part and parcel of daily life. The pressure to conform is a way of life in America today, and that pressure comes from the fear of being different, and it's wreaked havoc among followers of Christ. So instead of living differently, we adopt sort of an easy Christianity that has no impact on our lives the rest of the week. However, the church is the place where Christ is proclaimed. The church is the place where we gather together as one body to meet with this different God, precisely because he is living and true. We need to stand up for what we believe and then hold on to it with a passion. Because what we believe determines how we live. And if we believe in this different God, then how should we live differently? And if you're not sure what we believe, I've enclosed it as an insert in this morning's bulletin. Just the basics, just the high points, just the important stuff. If you have that little insert... Look at number six. Salvation, eternal life is completely the gift of God given by his unmerited love, received by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, results in forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and brings new life as a new creature. Do you believe that? Peter did. If you've placed your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you can say, regardless of what you feel like, that you have been made new, you have been made different, you have been set apart, and if you're really brave, you can even say that you have been made holy. But you can't say you've been given an easy life. Easy Christianity is the ever-present temptation for the church in the West. But it's not reality. Because it's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity isn't all about health or wealth or having no problems. Christianity is simply and ultimately only about Christ. It's about knowing Christ in a real and personal way. And it's in this relationship with Christ that meaning and purpose can be found sometimes even in the midst of pain and suffering. And because meaning and purpose is found rooted in the love of Christ and in the grace of God, we can live differently because now we are different. And we are different because we have a different God. Think about that. You need to pray. (coughs) Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, we are so much like Peter in his failure, and sometimes we're so little like Peter in his restoration, and it's easy to point fingers at him and not at ourselves. Help us to be honest 
about our own lives, our own failures, our own sin. Help us to be people who can't wait to get to God and be forgiven. Help us to be people who can say, without any shame or any embarrassment, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Lord Jesus, make that real, make that true in our lives, in our hearts this day, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.